Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 143. Today's guest name is Cindy Whitehead, which is now Cindy Eckert, and she is amazing. She's on the show today to give us her journeys from selling two companies, and her most recent one was Sprout, which was known as the Female Viagra, who she sold to Valiant for over a billion dollars. But in the journeys that Cindy is sharing with us, she has so much passion for being an entrepreneur, for women, and how to actually change things in the world that she's passionate about. And what she describes in the episode is what it's like building the most magical teams that believe in the passion that she has, and then how to hire the right investors that also believe in what you believe in. And then she explains in some really, really great detail what it's like to actually find a buyer that believes what you believe, but then also what it's like when that doesn't unfold. Even though she had made a billion dollars from the exit, that it's not all about the money. And I know it sounds crazy to a lot of us, but when you have a deep passion for what you do and what you believe, then when it doesn't come to fruition as an entrepreneur, there's a huge hole in your identity and who you are as a person and the passion that gets you up every morning. So Cindy shares with us what it was like going through that transition and transaction. She's got a lot of great advice about what you should be doing in the deal structure from a legal standpoint and how what her attorneys did allowed her to actually file suit to eventually get her baby back so she can now take it and grow it and hopefully see her vision come to fruition. So I really hope you enjoy this interview with Cindy. If you want to know what it's like selling a company for a billion dollars on the second exit, listen in. If you want to know what it's like really understanding how you can change the world and how to prioritize the people that are around you, listen in. So without further ado, here's Cindy. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Cindy, how are you doing? Doing well, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, really looking forward to having you on the show. You've got a couple good stories that you're willing to share with us. And uh, you were on John Warlow's show, which is where I first got a little bit of a taste of what you've done. And uh, you and I were chatting a little bit before the show. And I'm excited because you've got a lot of insights from the couple exits that you've had. But um, for the listeners that haven't really gotten the full exposure, can you guys give us a couple of the cliff notes of the, the couple companies that you've started and sold and what you're doing now? Sure. Um, so I've built and sold two pharmaceutical companies. Uh, the last one I sold was Sprout Pharmaceuticals, which is best known for what the media dubs female Viagra for getting <laughs> the first ever drug uh, for women to market. There were 26 drugs uh, for men when I started out, not a single one for women. And I knew it all too well because my previous company that I had built from scratch had one of those male sexual health drugs. So um, been in healthcare most of my career, uh, had two you know, pretty big exits, the last one for a billion dollars that get a lot of people's attention. Um, and now I have built in, in the process of building yet another company in the pink ceiling, as well as getting my old company back. So we got a lot to talk about. <laughs> I, which I'm so excited too, because like, you know, that was some of the things that happened with uh, with Sprout, I'm excited to, to dive into. But you know, before we go into all that, Sydney, like, how did you decide to get into uh, the big pharma? And then 
Yeah. When did you decide? To, did you decide to become an entrepreneur? Or was it an accident? What's the, where did it? Where was the inception? I, I love that question because I have to tell you, I've thought about that a lot, and I I tease that I must have decided in my childhood because every single game that I structured. Um, I owned my own business. <laughs> so, no, that was, in fact, just the only way that my big brothers would play with me because they manipulated me into like running my own kitchen, which in essence <laughs> made me get things from the refrigerator and bring it to them on the couch. Um, so maybe my big brothers picked for me. But you know, I really, I've always had a love of business. I have had, uh, you know, and I when I got into pharma, that was also that one was a little bit by accident. So entrepreneur, I ultimately chose. I think the wiring was there from a very young age, but the love of business precipitated getting out of college and wanting to work for Fortune's most admired company. And really, it was that singular in its focus. If I go learn from the best, I can apply it to anything. At the time, Fortune's most admired company was Merck, giant Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical company. So I went there with the intention of learning business, fell in love with the science, realized that big was not for me, And then chased innovation and went smaller, smaller, smaller until I finally realized, what the hell are you doing creating all of this value for other people that you're not participating in the winnings for? I feel like, you know, I have enough gray hair and and, uh, and, and Rolodexes, you know, Mm -hmm. robust enough, if you will, um, that I can go out and start something on my own. So I did it. And that was really born out of a hypothesis that there were other people like me in this industry. I love the industry for what it can do. And I, man, that's, well, and that's what I want to, I'm like, cause you got, you got so much passion behind it, which is what we'll, we'll be diving a lot into, but what, and explain the industry for the listeners, because you have a very unique passion behind some of the things that you've been doing. And, and, and how, did, how did you get into the sexual health industry? I mean, what was, and what's kind of the whole, the driving motive that wakes you up every morning that has to do with this? I tease, you know, Irish Catholic sex. Um, my parents were say that. <laughs> No, the you not love it, right? <laughs> I got into this niche. So I worked in a lot of different therapeutic categories, but in particular, this one is relatively young in terms of what we understand. And it's scientifically fascinating because of so much of our discovery. And really for me, you know, sex is part of the human experience. It's really part of who we are, um, you know, our moxie, how we show up in this world. And it's important for most all of us, and yet we overlook it. I, I'm fascinated by the things we overlook, uh, and why do we, you know, sort of marginalize it with humor? And I know that's the comfortable way to mm-hmm. talk about sex. And yet, if you watch people who are struggling with issues, true medical issues that we have known about forever, and we don't address them, it really sort of, you know, destroys their life as they know it. When I started sort of being a crusader, if you will, in this space. People would say, come on, Cindy, like nobody's going to lose their life from this condition. And what I would say is go talk to them because they're right. living their life as they know it. So mm-hmm. I have a real passion for it. I think it's a, you know, it's a backbone of the human experience. You know, it's interesting, just a total like side note on that. I, um, I heard this quote from someone, I might totally screw it up, so forgive me, but it was like, it's sex is 10% of a relationship. But if you're not having it, it's 90% of yes. it. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's good. There's actually data around that. So good call. It, it Did is, I actually get it right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredible. The add, you know, the additive value is relative in a good relationship, but the, what, what you take away and it's really that let's face it. If things have broken down in the bedroom, they've broken down across the breakfast table mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that it's so integral to our connection um, with a partner for most of us. Uh, you know, and for most people's life experience. 
So how did you just explain, and we can totally bounce back and forth between the, the two companies that you started because you you had mentioned that you did things differently both times and then also what, what you're doing now because I think there's this kind of themes. How did you start the first company and then, which was Slate, right? And then also how did that translate into doing things differently with Sprout? Yeah. Well, look, its name was Slate, right? Truly started with the clean slate. I was going to do it on my own terms. I had been in the industry for some time. I you know, loved some of the mission, hated a lot of the processes, felt like there were environments in which basically you tried to create uniformity. You know, I feel like cultures today try to create like this, you know, homogeneous pool, if you will, as opposed to like celebrating individuality. So I thought there are probably other people, they're, they're performing well, you know, they're determined on their own right to be um, you know, excellent in terms of their performance. But what if you put them in an environment, gave them permission to be themselves, celebrated sort of the individual strengths, you know, what could you tackle together? And then started looking for an asset. And the asset that I came across uh, was this male sexual health drug. It was at the time the FDA's only long-acting testosterone that was approved. So for male sexual health, loved the category, loved the science, and really just started, you know, handpicking people. I mean, we very much are a culture of misfit toys. You know, we, we were successful in, in conventional environments and yet really uninspired, didn't mm-hmm. fit, you know, started building this team, putting them together, giving this sort of different permission, um, this real focus and return to focus on patient. And I think what we did together was extraordinary. So Slate was in so many ways, like the proof, uh, you know, the thesis sort of proven out, like this can be done, um, you know, even though we operate inside of, you know, incredible confines of regulation and everything else in this industry, you don't have to operate with no imagination. And I think it's a laziness inherently um, in the industry that there isn't more, you know, seeking of creativity or lessons from other sectors. And so out of Slate, out of that ride in male sexual health, it's really how I got a beat on Addy. Uh, mm-hmm. which is the drug for female sexual uh, desire, and was watching this spectacular science emerging and watching all these companies walk away. And it was crazy because it was clearly not on the basis of the science. The science was spectacular. It was really on the basis of this cultural narrative um, and these belief systems we have around women and sex. And so when everyone else was walking away, it was my signal to go in. So I sold off uh, the business with the male drug and took this on. So that, which is, first of all, the, the teams that we'll, we'll make sure we come back to building teams, because I think it's one of the funnest things ever when you have oh. that, when you have the magic that goes into it. Yeah. And on that, maybe on that note, Cindy is like, did you, did you have the teams go back uh, that, that follow you to Sprout? And then how did you, did you raise money for Slate? Because I know I you can, maybe you can give the, 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 the differences of how you did it with Slate versus how you did it with Sprout. Sure. Well, I'll tell you, they actually ended up being very similar in that. Uh, and this will not surprise you, Ryan, because you know if you see me, I show up in blazing hot pink and don't expect like classic pharma exec. So no surprise to anybody that I also wasn't going to get money in the conventional way. <laughs> Never mind, uh, you know the numbers are stacked against me because only two percent of venture capital goes to female-founded companies. So I ended up, you know, I am a, sh- a shameless entrepreneur in that I love to tell everybody what I'm doing, <laughs> service to them. If I didn't tell them what I was doing. And thankfully doing that, you know, ended up getting to one right ear who, you know, introduced me to their two friends who introduced me to their four friends. I've raised all of my money incredibly in such a capital intensive industry um, through high net worth or family offices. 
So I've not taken any traditional venture money. So I've raised money in both companies, um, but it has not been maybe as no surprise the conventional path there either. That's Sequoia Capital. <laughs> <laughs> not no, I never had the you know I never was the chosen one. Right, right. and and, and what, what maybe this is a diamond if you want to say it. I loved your phrase at the bottom of the pink ceiling. Oh, <laughs> it's mine. It's mine. Fuck the unicorn beat yeah. workhorse. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Like let's, let's actually do it the right way and actually make some money and do the right thing. <laughs> exactly. Because you know what, if you set out and I think so many times as I'm talking about sprout and a billion dollar exit and people talk about, you know, unicorn, like if we had shown up day one and declared we were going to be the next unicorn, here's what I would tell you, Ryan, we would not have been successful. Put your mm-hmm. head down, do the work, be the workhorse. That's how you get to these outcomes. And those are the people I look to join me, not anybody who's got, you know, their declaration of greatness before mm-hmm. they've ever executed. And I, I do think that's a problem in entrepreneurship today. So, and, and, and let's, let's dive into that because I think, you know, there was a guy that I interviewed on my podcast and he just worded it so beautifully. And he said that all money has personality. So, you know, money's not just money, but like what you have done for both of these companies, I think is very unique in that you, you found the right money. But also that you built the right teams. So like explain the 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 makeup of how what what that's like for you. Well, I'll tell you, um, in terms of finding the right teams, I find people who have a deep passion for business, they're builders and they're owners. And that is not only do they come to me with that personality type of you know truly owning it to their core, that means they're accountable for everything, you know, they they love creating value, they want a piece of the value they created, but it's also making them owners. Um, which I think so many businesses miss. And there is a way to get people's skin in the game. So, I mean, I think that's the fundamental, the personality, if you will, for us is the personality of ownership, of everybody who works for me, of the cultures we create. And then from a, you know, a money perspective, I, I got to tell you, the people who've come on this ride with me really are double bottom line people. Like it wasn't only about the return. It was about the mission it was a belief in what we were trying to do. And sort of thank God, because I had so many twists and turns in which I think, you know, it had it been an investor who managed the spreadsheet, they would have been out calling, you know, like waving the flag a lot sooner. And they really did hang with me. And I think that that made all the difference ultimately. I love it. Uh, are you familiar with conscious capitalism? Yes. Isn't, I just yes. love it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know if you, I mean, that, you, you mentioned the double bottom line. I was with uh, some guys yesterday morning where they, it's all about the triple bottom line. They've got this company called uh, Woodchuck USA where they, they sell like wood notebooks and all this stuff. And it's buy one, plant one. And they plant their, their goal is plant 10 million trees by 2021. And they've already got 2 million down. It's so cool. Incredible. It's great. I love it. I mean, that that's what you should be investing in those kind of things. If, if it is managed to the spreadsheet, it's probably got no soul. And I think those businesses that have no soul are never really the defining businesses. So let's exp- explain to us as like as you're you know for either of these companies as you're growing them, um, how are you taking your team? What are some of the big milestones that you were that you were trying to accomplish? And what was the big what was the mission and the passion that you were pushing down? And what were the like what was it the the goal that you were marching towards? Yeah, so I think in Sprout, you know, the mission or let me take it back in Slate. The mission was to do it differently, you know, to be hyper-conscious, if you will, of the patient experience, to return, I think, to what I'd call the fundamentals, go old school in the business, um, where I think in so many ways, pharma has so disconnected with the the patients that they serve. 
And really this idea of could you take these very, you know, this eclectic mix of people and achieve great success. And we built a brilliant, um, it was a wonderful product. Like you've got to have a great product, right? But we built this incredible business that I think was as much about the culture of how we were doing it differently um, than, than almost anything. And then on Sprout, look, the mission is very straightforward. And that is to give women with a medical condition that we have known about for decades an option and to remove all of those narratives that are impeding progress, um, to you know, strip it down, have an evidence-based discussion, and whether they take it or don't take it, by God, they deserve the choice. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's really what we're all about is giving, a, I mean, in, if I'm being very ambitious, it's to change the cultural conversation about women and sex. So we're very mission-driven um, in terms of you know, how we get these things done, and we're pretty singular in our focus. I think we think we'll do one thing, we'll do it really well, um, we don't hedge our bets by like adding in a bunch of other products just to make sure we're de-risking. Like we're going all in, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to try to get these things done. So, how, what was that like finding investors that had the same passion for this as you? And then how did well, how did you structure that so that way when hard times came across that you guys were all aligned and could like you yeah. said the, the flag wasn't going up. Well, first, let me tell you, I, I didn't do it right from the beginning. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I will tell you that's my biggest fail is that, um, you know, early on, here I am with this company, um, you know, we're, we're starting to get inbound calls from physicians who say, why hasn't a rep been by to see me? You know, this is my field. And we're thinking, holy cow, like here we are, because you know, the thought leaders were so excited about our technology. They were talking about it at medical conferences. And I, frankly, I didn't have the money. Um, you know, to really build out the sales force. And I needed, I felt like I needed, I had an urgency, right? I had to do it quickly. And so um, I did a partnership with a company who would dedicate their entire sales force um, to our efforts. It was sort of, you know, overnight, holy crap. Talk about like the ink was not even dry and our philosophies departed, oh, no. um, you know, as far as the left and the right of the room, if you will. We just did not see, we have the same philosophy on how you compensate people, how you treat people. Um, and so now I'm stuck with them and, uh, and it took me a year to get them out and to get somebody else in. But I learned a critical lesson very early, which is I was choosing to, and I think it's really hard, you know, when you're building these businesses, you have this moment with this potential to scale and somebody's willing to write you a big check. You just got to take a breath, step back and really make a decision if you want their money. And thank God again that that happened because I had chose who else came into the business. And I really grew from friends of friends. And I really asked for that because I knew that they knew who I was. They knew the mission I was. They would have already sort of pre-screened, if you will, who they were introducing me to. Um, and that's how we ultimately got all the money. And, and I think that how I kept them with me is ever so simple. I'm hyper communicative. Mm. There were never any mm. surprises. Um, you know, they were on this ride with me. They were every bit a part of it. And I think it, you know, we were talking just a, a little bit earlier about, you know, money and this personality of money. What I worry about is that they're sort of, we're losing that. And, you know, for me, when they gave me money, I saw it as their children's college fund. I saw it as their aging parents going into the long-term care facility. They were giving me their hard-earned money and it was my responsibility to pay it back and then some. And I worry that in this moment of, you know, the unicorn declaration early and all of those things, we think of money as just, oh, well, okay, it just came in and I can lose it. And they already knew and there were risks. 
And we don't have that sort of responsibility to it. And all of these investors are now really a sort of a secret weapon to me because I get excited about an idea and I send it out to a national network of people who bet on me and I'm getting them to bet on other female entrepreneurs. What I was going to say is, you know, you bring up some amazing points and is, you know, you're communicating your mission and your vision to all these people. And as you know, when you look at all the different people that are, you know, sitting by you, Cindy mm-hmm. is building these companies and then all as throughout the exits and choosing the buyers, I, yeah. you know, I, I find it a lot of times that like, I went through the same thing. And a lot of the people I interview or with my clients, like they don't even, they, they might do that with the, maybe they do that with the investors, but then how did that impact your ability to hire your team of the investment bankers and the attorneys and then finding the buyers? Because, you know, it's such a, it's such, there's marriages all over the place. And there really are. So yeah. how, how do you, how did you, you know, maybe if you can shed some light on like the, the teams that you built outside of just the, the capital. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, my, you know, my team is just, I, I love my team and I wouldn't be here without like extraordinary people who made a bet on me as well to come and they would, you know, rip the sheets off every morning and go to work for me as owners. Uh, and finding them, I think is in many ways was this gut instinct. I think in the interview process, I interviewed everyone. It's one of my principles. Like there's nobody who's coming into to my business that I haven't had an opportunity to get to meet and know and know their kids' names and their dogs' names and everything else because we really are co-owners in it. Um, and I think, you know, I'm a lot about the conscious choices that they make every day when they show up in this world and we talk about six different choices in our organization. But in terms of the bench, like when you're small, you better be developing your bench. And I think it's really as simple as inviting people into your fund. So just like I was talking about, you know, inviting the investors into the fund, like we didn't have a company unless they were giving us money and they were owners in it as well. It's in, it's inviting people into this mission. Um, it's that passion, I think, that draws them in. And then it's obviously, you know, you, you're constantly um, looking for those better than you are to give you advice. When I sat at the table, on, you know, to sell the businesses, and they really did happen a little bit um, by, you know, we focused on from the outset, like create value. That's what we're, we're here to do. We're going to create value, and when you create value, people notice, and then people start calling you. And so I think, as opposed to sort of the formality of the process or the idea that oh, we're going to build it to this size and then we're going to shop it, we really were just focused. Let's create value, and then they'll come. And it worked out that way. And I will say, you know, between the bankers and the legal team, we talk a lot in entrepreneurship about who is the bank that went out and sold it with you. I got to tell you, my legal team was even more important. And I'm talking about my external group, the group that wrote the deals um, and ultimately wrote the contracts to sell off the company. They were invaluable. And I think people may overlook that. I, 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 could not agree with you more. And it's so, it's so interesting as I've interviewed gazillions of advisors and experienced a lot of them. I mean, you know, investment bankers will hold their weight in gold, you know, for just being the intermediary and making sure everybody's emotions are in check. But like what I found Cindy, and like, I'm curious if you got any like specific stories in your couple exits that the, the legal part of all this stuff in the deal structure, it glues everything together and it could totally make or break everything. So make sure. I, I mean, I just like, there's nothing more important than that, especially the people that the, the legal team should know so much about the deal structure, but then the tax, all of the stuff, the taxes, everything. So like, I can sure. get a couple examples of like some of uh, the stuff that they did. Love to, because I'll tell you the difference between selling company one and two was the legal team and the kind of 
lesson learned, right? If you're, if you're a good entrepreneur, you're constantly learning, you're constantly screwing <laughs> something up and then you're getting better because the next time you won't, you won't do it again. You won't do right. it twice. <laughs> but you know, when I structured it, so typically both of my transactions were cash up front and structure on the back end. So royalties. And, um, and so in the first one, you know, cash up front, this brilliant, like royalty mailbox money going to come for years. But what governed that was a, you know, and I'm putting air quotes up, best efforts clause. Classic legal boilerplate language, right? Best efforts. Well, hey, guess what? Like your version of best efforts and my version of best efforts, a little different. Maybe a little bit different. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you sit as a founder and you're like, whoa, they're not, you know, they're not doing this, they're not prioritizing that, whatever it may be, which is directly impacting how much you're being paid for it. And never mind, it's your baby. So you want to see it thrive. So when I went into the second deal, um, I thought about that a lot. And with the legal group, put really specific performance obligations in the contract. So same thing, cash up front, structure on the back end, but these are the following things that would be a basic expectation. So how much money they would spend on marketing, on education, how many salespeople they would have out there educating the clinical community, you know, the things germane to my, to my industry. And it wasn't like I was making huge asks. These were like 101 of marketing. But actually having that specificity in the contract is what gave me the door in to go back and get the company back. Yeah, which is crazy. Really the legal, it was the structure of the documents of the sale that that made all of the difference. So, so many times, and I know this happens for you too, Ryan, like entrepreneurs are coming, they're thinking about selling their business. They want you to tell them everything about the bankers and like, wait, wait, let's, let's talk about the the legal team who's coming in because that's going to make it or break it. Well, it, totally. And they, I mean, and it's so interesting because I don't know what it is about entrepreneurs where they just want to get, you know, they, they, and I'm totally guilty of it too. Like the next best thing. So like, let's just move on. Right. Let's like, I'm, this is a stepping stone. Let's go, let's go. But then what happens is like, I like what I say, like you can, anything you can creatively think about, you can put in a document, like anything. That's right. Right. Like you just have to, have to make sure someone can negotiate it for you. Of course. Right. Put it in, like at least start there, ask for it. Um, right. You know, and take it from there for sure. I do think there is like a, you know, entrepreneurs are, and I, I think there's a difference between, I call it the, you know, the founder CEO and the forever CEO. Mm-hmm. Like some of us, we love the build. Um, but I think that you should always be a little reluctant to give it up, you know, and, and I think that will command such greater value. You are, you're in it to take it all the way through. You're not going to be dependent on them to come in. So you can certainly do it yourself. Um, and I think that's where you get, you know, real value in transactions. And mm-hmm. I will say, you know, it is both exhilarating and excruciating to sell your company. What do you mean by that? And elaborate. I think, you know, the, the exhilaration is, isn't it like the entrepreneur's dream come true? Holy cow, I built it. Somebody saw it. They're going to take it to the next level. They're going to take it global, whatever it may be. You know, that's exhilarating that you've seen it through. And yet the excruciating part is, hey, guess what? you're now standing on the sidelines and somebody else has your baby. And when you had this baby, you had a whole vision for how they were going to grow up in this world, um, you know, what they were going to go on to do. And suddenly you're no longer calling the shots. So you want, you think like you found the perfect adoptive parents and they have more resources than you and they can send them to better schools and, you know, like all of those things. And yet, oh my gosh, they might not actually have the same vision as you. And so I've, I've certainly lived that of standing on the sidelines as well and some of the heartbreak um, and loss of something that's so integral to who you are. 
I think, you know, if, if totally if well said, it, you're so connected to it. It's, it's, I, I could not agree more and you articulated it very well, Cindy. And I actually think that it's like a total reflection of you. Like it's the people you hire, the investors and like how you deal with your clients. I mean, it's literally a, a derivative of you almost every single place you look. <laughs> no question. It's your identity. It's identity in so many ways. I agree. So then let's go back maybe and kind of take the, the journey through that as, you know, what was maybe some of the steps that you were taking? Because, you know, you went through a, a grueling FDA approval and then you kind of walk through like how did the, because the, you, you had said that you were planning on doing it and creating value and doing it yourself. So at what point, like, you know, did the uh, knocks on the door come and, you know, I had to use your, your analogy. When did you think that it was okay to hand your kid off to someone else versus taking it yourself? Okay. So, um, what happened is if you know the sort of the FDA process at the final moment, um, in our particular case, the FDA assembled this expert panel. So experts in the field to come in, look at all of our data, put us on trial, so to speak, uh, as the company, ask us all of these questions, the public had a chance to comment. And what they do is they then vote and give their vote to inform FDA's decision. And so there's a period between that vote and the FDA's final approval or disapproval, if you will, so rejection. So they voted overwhelmingly to approve the drug. So all of a sudden, the big companies went, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) The little company who could in in Raleigh, North Carolina is actually going to get it done. And so that's when they came calling. So it was very interesting. People were surprised. We literally got the drug approved. We announced we were selling it the next day. And it's because that period had happened in between in which everybody saw the approval was coming. Um, and I think that for me, when they came calling, um, you know, there were a few different suitors. And actually the suitor who emerged, the, the winner, if you will, part of the reason I chose them is they would keep the team. And so there are a few things. Like it was right in the sense that they could march it across the globe. They had the infrastructure, and this shouldn't just be a drug in the United States. It should be a global drug. Um, you know, they could make it more broadly, more affordably accessible to women. That mattered to me. And they were going to keep the team. And the reason that was so important to me, and it was in Slate too, by the way, they, they took the entire team with them, is I know that it's people. Businesses are people. Mm-hmm. And they're who show up, who care the most, who are going to put it in, um, you know, all that time, all that love, and then blood, sweat, and tears. And so what was so crushing to me is when they purchased, I was going to stay too, by the way. Um, so they, when they bought the, the, um, the company, we were going to be decentralized. They were going to be this incredible sort of bank account. We were going to get to execute this big vision we had. It became very clear very quickly um, that I wasn't going to be the person <laughs> with the CEO. And I had to check myself. I'm the founder. I'm Mama Bear. Like I have a, you know, somebody just came in and paid a billion dollars for your company. It's their company. Um, And so I really felt like when I got invited to leave, (laughs) I like to call it, (laughs) and, you know, thought, well, my best will be at least my people are there and I'll be the biggest cheerleader in the world because I love this. I love this mission. And then the crushing blow was when they dismantled my entire team, because that had been a piece of why I picked them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the, as soon as the people who were the heart and soul, I think of the mission were out, um, it's, it's how it all fell apart. Well, and I, and I want to dive into that. Um, it, but maybe for some context for the listeners, um, can you, cause it was Valiant that purchased you yeah. guys, maybe you just kind of give a quick, quick cliff notes on what happened and why some of this transpired and 
and I'm curious and within that news, like how you're letting go and your team, where that fell into the sequence of events that they were, of what they were going through. Oh, sure. So, so, you know, we announced this transaction in August of 2015. Um, deals don't close for some time, right? They've got to go through all the regulatory stuff. It didn't close until October the 1st. And on October the 11th, um, Valiant got a Department of Justice letter uh, because of some issues they had with an undisclosed pharmacy. So Valiant, at the time they purchased us and the time their agreement um, began in August, was sort of the darling. And they were you know, trading at something like $260 a share. Um, they had traded down to as low as $8 a share in the you know, subsequent year. Their CEO was turned over. There's a new CEO there now. And so they really, you know, they had their own internal crisis that we could have never seen coming. So in many ways, they had a business that went into crisis mode, and this was the last thing in. Um, and I think that it just was overwhelming to suddenly be launching a new first-in-class, first-in-category drug amidst all of this other um, stuff going on. And so it kind of got put on the shelf. And there wasn't a champion team inside. They dismantled the team, and there it sat. And uh, and I think you know that's why it happened. Their intention when they came to us was really to demonstrate the ability to grow something from scratch. I think they were you know very good at acquisition. They thought they'd go out and buy other products in women's health. That sounded brilliant to me. It's an area obviously I'm deeply passionate about, and we build this wonderful women's health franchise. But it just didn't go that way. And uh, and so as it sat there. And, you know, for all the fight we had given for women to finally have access, for them then to not have access really just reignited me to start knocking on their door and say, give it back. <laughs> well, and, and I'm just, right, which we'll get into. I'm just, Cindy, what was it like when you have this vision of how the world's going to unfold and that when yeah. it's tied into your vision of, you know, that, I mean, that's a global scale of having women have access to this and a vision of your team. And like, I mean, that's why you pick these people that there was an alignment of vision. And what was it like for you to watch that be dismantled? I mean, there were a lot of tears. And I, I think there was, you know, deep regret on my part that I hadn't seen it coming. And that was, you know, it felt like, you know, failing your people. I, I can, when I stepped out, when, you know, when it was clear that, I wasn't going to be the right personality fit uh, because when things started to go sideways with Valiant, you know, I became louder, like what's going on. I need answers. What's happening. Um, and, you know, I, I think in that way, I was a little bit of, you know, a threat um, and that I was out, you know, I felt like still for my team to be there, I could cheer them on. And then when they got rid of all of them, I, I was crushed uh, for all of them because their heart had been in it. I tell you the happy part of that story is so many of them are back with me today. So they went on with their lives and, you know, the last several years they had new companies they were in and everything else. And lo and behold, they dropped everything to come back, which is just a testament I think, to who they are and how much they care about this. But I, I, I went through a real like crisis in that period of time. And so much of it was just about letting people down uh, and worrying that I'd let not only the people who'd worked for me down, but also women down because it's had a larger than life. I will tell you as I went through that and, you know, I was, I was struggling with that. I finally did kick myself in the ass and say, okay, this is not who you are. Like you go, you know, go fix it, go figure something out. And that wasn't only about getting Sprout back. It was also really what informed pink ceiling because I think what I got to do is reflect on what came out of this, which was a front row lesson 
in, you know, what it means to advocate for women, for women to advocate for each other. And I thought, by God, like my work is not done. I'm going to reach my hand back and I'm going to get other women to these outcomes. And this is how we're going to change things. And, um, and so, you know, because of the hitting the low, if you will, after that, I have the wonderful opportunity today inside the pink ceiling uh, to change it for others. And, and we're, I want to get into the pink ceiling too in a, in a sec, but to, to go back, like, what was it, you know, going back to, to the, the actual letting down and the way that I kind of described, like my experience was like the rug got pulled out from my vision. You know what uh-huh. I mean? And like, you know, and, and, you know, honestly, you know, my, our exit was a, a microcosm of what you, cause there was no B on mine. It was, might've been <laughs> somewhere in an, in an accounts payable. Something <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, like, in all, in all seriousness, like most people would say, well, come on, Cindy, get over it. Right. I mean like, but they don't realize that it's not about the money. And so how do you reconcile that? That is so that? true. Yeah. I don't know that anybody feels sorry for me. They saw, you know, they really did. They, they go, wait a minute. Like you got this video an exit. Are you, are you really sad? Are you not sitting on the beach? And like, what you realize is that um, it's never about the money. And, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to know a lot of people who've done really extraordinary things and to call them friends. And I will tell you the common thread is they didn't do it for the money. They may be wildly successful but these are not people content to like go have the little umbrella in their drink for the rest of time. Like they're restless in terms of changing things and building things that really make a difference. And so I think nobody was feeling sorry for me, but that was actually also hard. Because lonely part about it, right? Very lonely in like this devastation when everybody thought you should be doing cartwheels. And, um, and I think that, you know, that actually makes you feel almost further isolated in it. Um, so it, it, that was a, that was a tough time. And I, you know, I talked to a lot of people about exits, about what you feel when I did it, I can't really have a measurement from slate to sprout because this will tell you a lot about me. Slate was a big exit, um, as well. And we literally sprouted out of slate. (laughs) (laughs) We sold it and I was working there the next day. Like there was no downtime. So I, I do think that, you know, it's, it really never is about the money. It's about the, the love of what you're trying to accomplish. A hundred percent agree. And then how, like, you know, what was the triggering event that helped you rebuild your identity? Because like, you know, and I've, by the way, before we go on that, have you ever heard of the book called Finish Big? I, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. So um, you're going to love it. It's by a, a dear friend, Bo Burlingham, okay. um, who's also a friend of John Warlow's. And, uh, it's literally about like, you know, he talks about most on 75% of entrepreneurs are, are upset 12 mm-hmm. months after the sale, regardless of how much money they make, because mm-hmm. they didn't know who they were or what they wanted from their company and why. And I read this book, unfortunately, after we sold. <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> and, then, and then like yeah. the, the, he goes, you know what the most terrifying question that you could ask an entrepreneur that is sold 12 months later? What do you do? Right. <laughs> They're like, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> so true. Someone told me, I'm not going to get it right too. There's a wonderful woman who's a um, dear friend of mine who said to me, like the two most terrifying things are having no options or having every option. Hmm. And actually like what happens? Like, what do you do if suddenly, like everybody sees it as transformation. You still show up this, you like, you wake up the next day, you're the same person, <laughs> right? You don't do anything differently. You know, I have a wonderful guy who manages my money. He showed up, um, I think a couple weeks ago and he said, all right, so you live in the same house, you drive the same car. And I'm pretty sure you were wearing that the last time I came 
in, so we're good. (laughs) I mean, maybe his commentary is maybe you should be doing something different, but like, this is what I love. And, you know, my work is my hobby. My hobby is my work. Like, what would I be doing if I wasn't doing this? And I think that's really what happens is the work that you have been doing that was so focused on this one business when it's gone, you really have to very quickly, in my mind, if you're wired this way, find the next thing for your own sanity. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's so, you know, it, you, you're lost in it. And I, I found it in the pink ceiling. Well, and it, well, and let's get into the pink ceiling, but what also you got the company back. So like, (laughs) it's not just the pink ceiling. You literally got your baby, your baby went to college and came back. So (laughs) didn't, didn't end up actually never got off the bus. Unfortunately, (laughs) we're, we're, we're back with, and, and, and the truth is, you know, the day we sold this business, we were the largest news story in the world. It was incredible. Um, incredible to be part of it. Incredible to be a witness to it. And, you know, there was just so much momentum and it went to deafening silence Mm. in the absence of leadership. And so really it's not like starting at the same baseline. It's actually starting somewhere behind. And that, that's, that's interesting too, um, to have it back. But what happened uh, with the pink ceiling? So, you know, I've said, I thought my best work is going to be helping others. I'm an entrepreneur, you know, female entrepreneur. I know that uh, the numbers are stacked against me in terms of getting money, in terms of getting mentorship. And so how do I do my part in that? And so we have an umbrella of companies that we invest in, um, that we incubate. And you know my business team sort of surrounds them and helps pull them to launch. And they're all very disruptive first. They're buyer for women. But Sprout actually fell back under that umbrella. So our mission kind of got bigger under the pink ceiling. And then Sprout has folded back in as one of the pink ceiling companies. So it's incredible to have it back. And what I said earlier, I'll tell you, Ryan, the most incredible thing, and I've already, I've already said it, but it's that so many of my team came back. That's awesome. And they dropped what they were doing. So it really is, you know, getting the band back together um, and, and kind of getting it right. And when we, you know, when we had this opportunity, so there was a suit with Valiant because we had these really specific uh, performance obligations in the contract. And, you know, the path to more money was the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So uh, shareholders had to vote on, on getting this back. And there was a path to more money. But um, I will say not a single one voted against the transaction. How and cool. that, again, like that they believed in getting it right, that their pride wasn't getting it right. We had a big exit. Um, now it's really about, you know, making right on what we set out to do in the beginning. And so it's been, it's been interesting. It's, you know, and I'm back totally in startup mode. Like I said, you know, we're sort of starting almost, I don't want to call it in the holes per se, but like with years having passed from that wind in our sails, now trying to reignite, I think people around it um, and, you know, just try to get the supply chain and all of those things. So I'm really proud of what the team has, has done just in the last year. And we're really kind of just getting started if you will, with the launch of the product in this year. And, and explain, so which, you know, you've got the same kind of passion and mission. And so the mission hasn't changed behind that, but you know, I can tell the passion that you've got from the pink ceiling. And it sounds like your identity has grown as you have a new, bigger mission that isn't tied to a specific product actually. Right. So like explain how, and what is, what is the mission and passion behind the pink ceiling? Well, I'll say to you, um, I will say, I was thinking when I started out, like when I first became an entrepreneur, really the mission in Slate was to create 
this culture in my own little world. Like inside of my company, I can create this culture that I want, that I want a company to have in this world. And I think the evolution has been from these cultures, how do we impact the culture at large? And that's been the step up, if you will, in the aspiration. Um, So it, it, you know, it gets bigger, if you will, um, over time in terms of what we're hoping to do. And, and what is the, what is some of the challenges? Oh, wait, I didn't answer that. No, no, no. It's it's totally cool. No, I appreciate that. Of the pink ceiling. I'll tell you what my mission is, the pink ceiling. And I I'll, you'll bleep me out, but it's to make women really fucking rich. And I'll tell you why. I love it. (laughs) And that frankly is because women don't have access to capital. They don't have access to mentorship. And I want to get other women to outcomes like mine, because it shouldn't be a lonely club. And what the reason I want to do that is because when I do that, we change who sits at the other side of the decision-making table. We change the ability. Money is power. Money is power to invest in those things we deeply care about, to those ideas that we want to see in this world. And if it's still the construct that it is today, which is dominantly men who can't relate to some of these products, not bad people, they just don't invest in those things that they don't particularly relate to. Then you know we never get to see that change. And for me, the greatest joy in building and selling companies has been to create owners and this army of owners and this multiplier effect of ownership is really what we're trying to do in the pink ceiling. So if we get them to outcomes and they invest in the next round and the next round, you suddenly have this incredible freedom for people. And I'm not just talking financial freedom, it's freedom to kind of do what you really and deeply care about. And I've watched that happen with people who've come and worked for me. I'm so proud of people who've come to work for me who now own their own businesses, run their own businesses and watching what they create. I love that multiplier effect. Well, it is really true. And, you know, I, I, to go off on like a small tangent is I have interviewed a lot of women entrepreneurs on the show. Um, I got, uh, I got pulled into EY's winning women. Oh, cool. I don't know if you know any of the women over there or. Yeah. uh, so I have interviewed probably like seven of them of who have grown and sold. And like, I have this, like, and so they've kind of got the same, you know, mission of helping women access capital, which by the way, accessing, accessing capital is difficult for everybody because there is like this whole like elite crew oh, yeah. over the last, you know, handful of decades that sit there and they decide like they hoard the money can do whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And I, but I think what, you know, my, my, the, the reason I was bringing this up is women have this ability in my in my honest opinion, that is more the conscious capitalism culture, people first, and the in the cultures and the businesses that the, that women are capable of building is amazing, and wow. it is a multiplier effect, and to have more money in the women's hands right. just makes way better. Yeah. My my TEDx talk Ryan was called the DNA of a rule breaker, and it was really talking about the DNA of a female rule breaker. And I think that increasingly, as we go to you know management by uh, by ones and zeros, like management by spreadsheet and all of the data. And look, I love data. Like I love mm-hmm. how it informs better decisions and everything else. But I do think that the the factor in leadership of empathy is going to make all the difference because I think, you know, data viewed through the lens of empathy, data is informed differently, if you will. And so I do think that's going to be such a strength of future leaders. And I do think women, um, you know, have that that DNA and that wiring um, of what makes them so exceptional and why so many of these young women that I'm betting on that are have incubator companies, holy cow, like they're just incredible, you know, what they've set out to do. And I think completely to your point, you know, sort of conscious capitalists. 
It's like, as what point, at what point, what's it, what's it all for? <laughs> right. So like <laughs> you have to have that empathy layer to say, okay, well, we're going to change really cool stuff instead of just making money for money's sake with right. make of garnage. Yeah. What is the, if there's women out there that uh, want to understand what the pinky bader is and the pink ceiling, what are, what's the ideal candidate? What is the, the you know, how do they get exposed to it? What's the, what's the best route? So literally just look us up, pinkceiling.com, um, Pinkybater. You can follow all of our stuff and we have a pitch process to come in. And what we're really looking for are breakthrough first, buyer for women. Um, and those things that often we gravitate toward, those things I think that are catalysts in social conversation. I'll give you an example. Um, so I've invested in a woman named Bethany Edwards. Her company is Leah Diagnostics. She has a flushable pregnancy test. Bethany, <laughs> like this incredible engineer, geeky, just like I like, I'm <laughs> just like, <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, what she's doing is she's, she's disrupting what hasn't been touched forever since our like mom's pregnancy test. 80% of a pregnancy test today is plastic. Why? It doesn't need to be hers, you know, completely biodegrades. And actually it's prompting. It's funny when I watch Bethany tell people what she's doing, because there's sort of a reaction like, well, why would you need that? Well, why do you need this discretion? Well, why don't we just ask women? And you know, what we see are all of these ads in which the only outcome possibly could be this smiley face. And that's not always what women are seeking. Never mind, you know, if we even are compassionate about it, if a woman is going through infertility, she might not want to walk into the bathroom, look at the waste paper basket, and be reminded she's not pregnant again. And so there's nuance to this and there's complexity in the conversation. It's just going to be overlooked by classic, but is seen so clearly through the eyes of a female entrepreneur. So she's sort of prototypical. Um, we do look for things that are probably 12 to 36 months out from launch. Um, a lot of our um, entrepreneurs are often, just because of our background, scientists or engineers um, who have access to my business team to help them prepare to get to launch. And we look at, I don't want to so pigeonhole that we're just health tech. Mm -hmm. uh, because we definitely do not conventional pharma or med device. We do a lot of consumer goods. We have one in athletics that detects possibility of future injury, um, really cool stuff. But I loved it, women to come to us. So what I would say to your listeners is send it to us. We might not be the right fit for you. Our commitment to you is we'll be candid in that. And we've got such a brilliant network of other women, guys doing great work, looking at this area of investing in female entrepreneurs that will pass it on. Um, so we see a lot of investable ideas that might not be the perfect fit because we don't think we can give you as much of an advantage as someone else. So we hand it to them. I love it. And um, don't you think just like for, for women that are thinking about this and just try stuff, like, because now that there's platforms like yours that they, it's not as daunting. Like, I mean, they just have to like, just, Give it a shot. <laughs> take the risk. What are you waiting for? I will tell you that for sure. Nobody can take away anything you have done up until now. You've always got that. So that's in your back pocket. Um, so if you want to go do something, take the shot, take the risk. Um, and I do think now I tease all the time that, you know, I was an entrepreneur before it was cool in the sense of like the shark tank world and, right. and all we're so much more in tune and oh my God, they're like, they're cool. And, um, and you know, now like there weren't resources like all of the co-working spaces and I couldn't go on Eventbrite and find all of these, you know, events in my area in which I can get into rooms with people who are doing the same thing, you know, fighting the same battles as me and create that 
network and, you know, peer-to-peer mentorship that I think is essential as you're building something out. So go get in the room uh, with these folks and, and be wired with curiosity to find out what they're doing and, and how they might be doing it better. I love it. Well, if there's anything that we want to wrap up with, anything you want to you know, highlight from, because we covered some serious ground, anything that you want to highlight or something that maybe we didn't touch on that you want to leave the listeners with? You know, I, I think it's just sort of the, the do's and don'ts. I would say do take risks, do stay uniquely you through it all. Um, and, you know, do foster, I think, constructive irreverence and people around you, have them push you um, so that you never are so convinced that you've got it right, that you're always learning yourself. And I, I guess on that, the con, you know, the sort of converse of that is never be a mimic. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast. Me too. Thanks for having me. really hope you enjoyed that interview with Cindy as much as I did having the conversation with her. I think the huge takeaway is knowing what you want and what you're passionate about and aligning that with your investors, your employees, the future buyer could potentially be one of the most important things you do to lead you up to success and being proud about what you accomplished, the passion that you put into it, and all of the effort that you put into building that business and making sure that that vision is carried on to someone that believes what you believe. If you want to know how well you are prepped to have that vision aligned, go on to GEXP Collaborative's website, take the 25 multiple choice quiz that will align you on all the five different principles and the first one being your vision. Do you know what you want and why? If you do, then I swear in my life that you can reverse engineer to make sure that you go get it. But if you don't know what you want and why, there's a high probability that you will be disappointed afterwards because you didn't think about it. So I really hope you enjoyed this. Really sit down, think about it. Why did you start the business? What will make you happy out of it? If you think you have someone that has a great story that should be on the podcast, reach out to me on LinkedIn or on my email. Otherwise, please go on to iTunes, give me rating, huge pain in the ass, but it's a huge favor and I appreciate it a ton because it helps me get guests like Cindy on the show. So with that being said, I will see you next week.